Uh, our study this week is um, <clears throat> Lesson 18, I think it is. I have it right here. Um, the first angel's message is what we're going to look into. And before we get get started into uh, uh, this particular study, we continue our our prophecy studies. Let's have a word of prayer together. Father in heaven, we do thank you so much for this holy Sabbath day. We thank you for the opportunity to come together and study out of your holy word and, and uh, to look at prophecy here. Uh, these are important things that we're learning. We pray for the Holy Spirit to be given to us as we study, that uh, we may discern the truth, and that we may share this truth with others. So we humbly ask for the Holy Spirit to be with us now at this time. Help us uh, to have a right understanding and, uh, Lord, to make corrections through your grace and uh, bring glory to thee. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, friends, uh, this is the study of the first angel's message. We learned from Revelation chapter 13 uh, in our previous studies um, that... Um, <clears throat> The two-horned beast, this was last week, that the two-horned beast, we, we came to understand that that's, that's a, a symbolizing the United States, that it will create an image to the seven-headed beast that we studied the week before that, which we've determined to be the same as the little horn power, Daniel 7 and such, and that is papal Rome. And eventually, they're, they're going to enforce worship of that image by the use of a mark. So the, the United States is going to set up an image of papal Rome. Uh, in other words, an organization like that of papal Rome. You have a church and a state organization together. They're going to enforce worship by the use of a mark. Now, God now shares, as we come through uh, prophecy in our time here, God now shares three important messages that will prepare His true followers for this last conflict with the beast, his image, and the mark. And these messages are found in Revelation chapter 14. So you see, we've come through chapter 13. We're continuing on through prophecy here. We're getting into chapter 14. And we know that these are the last messages of warning to be proclaimed prior to the second coming of Jesus Christ. And so we're going to look at these messages. Um, beginning now, we're going to start with the first angel's message. Question number one, what special message does the first angel have? And we read in Revelation chapter 14, verses 6 and 7. It says, I saw another angel fly in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach unto them that dwell on the earth and to every nation and kindred and tongue and people, saying with a loud voice, Fear God. And give glory to him for the hour of his judgment is come. And worship him that made heaven and earth and the sea and fountains of waters. And so the question, what special message does the first angel have? Well, we read these two verses. Verses 6 and 7 are better rendered. You get into the original languages. And, and, and this makes it a little bit more clearer. It says, and I saw a messenger proclaiming worldwide the perpetual good news to declare unto them that live in the world, to every race, 
Gentile, every tribe, which is a clan, and language and people saying with a mighty noise, reverence and awe the very God and give him honor and praise and worship him for the time of his judging has come and worship him that brought forth the sky and earth and the sea and the supply of waters. This is a lot more descriptive, isn't it? When you get into the original Greek language, it is much more descriptive. It's very interesting that God put together through inspired uh, people, through inspired men, they, they put these, this Bible together and the two languages used, the Aramaic and, and Hebrew language and the, and the Greek language are probably the most descriptive languages uh, in earth's history. And so you, you know, we read it in English and uh, we don't necessarily always get exactly the description uh, that, was in, that you find in the original language. And so, what special message does the first angel have? Well, the answer is, he has essentially, he has the everlasting gospel. You know, this is a symbolic vision here by John. He sees, he's in vision, he sees these angels. And, and, and because it's a symbolic vision, this is not speaking of a literal angel. But what it is speaking of, when you look at angels, angels sometimes is interpreted as message or messenger or a message. And, and so what we're seeing here is a worldwide message being described. The angel represents God's saints engaged in the task of proclaiming what? The everlasting gospel. The everlasting gospel. Especially the features of the gospel that are mentioned in this verse at a time when the judgment is come. So his people are going to be giving a worldwide message, this everlasting gospel, at this time during the time that the judgment is come. The loud voice indicates that the message is going to be proclaimed so that all the world may hear it. And it also emphasizes the importance of the message. It's not coming in as a whisper. It's, it's being proclaimed with a loud voice. Question number two, what is... The everlasting gospel. Now, this is a very kind of a loaded question, you know, isn't it? What is the everlasting gospel? Well, let's let's look at uh, Genesis three and fi- verse fifteen. This is back at the fall of man. God comes to the garden. He finds that man has fallen, and here he's talking to the serpent. He says, I'll put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. So here we have the the prophecy that God is going to send a Savior to the world to save mankind. And and how's he going to do this? He's going to do it. This is the good news, and this this is how he is going to do He's going to do it. Of course, we know John 3, 16 and verse 17, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. So you see Genesis 3.15 is the promise of a coming Messiah. We read John 3.16 and 17. It talks about God loving the world so much he gives his only son and people who believe in him shall be saved. Romans 1.16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. That gospel, the word gospel actually means good news. So I'm not ashamed of the good news of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also the Greek. Then we have John 1 and verse 12. But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God. 
even to them that believe on his name. So right at the very beginning, right after the fall of man, God said there to the serpent, he says, I'm going to put enmity between thee and the woman. The serpent and his seed, those who are his followers, those who who don't accept the gift of God, and the woman. A woman in prophecy symbolizes a church. And a pure woman, a pure church, a harlot, an impure church. So God's going to put enmity. This is what he says. He says, I will put enmity. This enmity, and and enmity means hatred. So this this hatred is supernaturally put by God because God says, I'm the one who's going to do it. I'm going to be the one to put this hatred in you. And not it's not something that you're going to have naturally, see? When man sinned, his nature became evil and he was in harmony and not at variance with Satan. And when Satan heard that the seed of the woman should bruise the serpent's head, well, he knew that though he had succeeded in depraving human nature there by causing him to fall, yet by some mysterious process, God is going to restore to man his lost power and enable man to resist and overcome the devil's temptations. It is the grace that Christ implants in the soul that creates this hatred, this enmity against Satan. It comes from God, see? And without this grace, man would continue to be the captive of Satan and a slave, always ready to do his bidding. But this power is not naturally in humans. And that's the point. When you read about the promise of the coming Messiah, God is the one who says, I'm going to be the one to put enmity or hatred between you and the woman. I'm going to have my people are going to hate sin. See? Because right now they've fallen, they don't hate sin, they actually love sin. So it's going to take a power outside of human beings. It's going to take a power that they can't do for themselves. And that power is going to come from me. This is what God's saying. And when a soul receives Christ, see, he receives power to live the life of Christ. And that's, a, that's having power over sin and having a hatred of sin. That enmity. And uh, God's the one who gives it to you. And that is the everlasting gospel. That is the perpetual good news. And I guess you'd say that uh, what is the everlasting gospel? The answer is the good news that we can be forgiven our sins and then develop a character like that of Jesus that hates sin so much that we never choose to sin again. That's the gospel. That's the good news. Forgiveness and deliverance. Question number three. How do we experience the everlasting gospel? Because it is an experience. It's not something that God just waves a magic wand and nothing really changes in your life. It is an experience. How do we experience it? In Galatians 2 and verse 20, Paul said, I am crucified with Christ. Well, what was crucified? Crucifixion was a way of putting someone to death. They, they made this big cross stake out of you know, timber and they nailed you to it and you hung from it until you died. It is, is one of the most uh, evil, uh, painful, torturous ways to die. 
And then, so here, Paul says, I am crucified with Christ. When Christ was crucified, he died. And then Paul says, I died with Christ. I'm crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Just as Christ lived, right? Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So he's saying, my old self is put to death and Christ comes into me, brings me back to life, but it's not me that's living, it's Christ who's living in me. And now I don't live after the flesh. I don't live uh, uh, to, to, uh, to just satisfy my selfishness. I become selfless because that's the way Christ was. And this is part of that everlasting gospel. This is, the, this is how you experience this everlasting good news. John 15 and verse 5 says, I am the vine, ye are the branches. He that abideth in me and I in him. And this is Jesus speaking. The same bringeth forth much fruit. For without me ye can do nothing. And so it's an experience. You have to experience the gospel. When you accept Christ, you, you say, I give you my life, Lord. I want you to forgive me. You ask forgiveness. You repent of your sins. You invite Jesus uh, to, to bring that supernatural change into your life. And he, ju- he does. He's faithful. He changes you. He puts that enmity, that hatred in you, that hatred for Satan and sin. He supernaturally puts that in you. And you abide in Him. See? He abides in you and you abide in Him. And how do you abide in Him? By studying about Him, by praying and talking to Him, by doing the things that He leads you to do, which is to live the life that He lived. See, And so how do we experience the everlasting gospel? The answer is by being spiritually reborn and having Christ living within our heart and mind. It is impossible for humans or man in his own strength to escape from the pit of sin into which we've fallen and to bring fourth fruits of holiness. We can't do it. In some way, every righteous deed we commit uh, has some taint of sin with it. It has a, a, a sinful motive behind it. Unless we have Christ living within, see? He has to live within. This is the secret, friends, of a successful Christian experience. Christ abiding within and living out in us the same perfect life that He lived here on earth but He lives it through us. And that can happen now. That's good news. So if you're you know, beaten down by sin, there is good news. I can, Jesus says, I can deliver. I'll forgive you that. I'll remove the guilt from you. And then I'll give you the means, the power, to not do those things again and not experience that guilt ever again. Because you experience guilt because you have broken the law. (laughs) See? So I'm going to keep you from breaking the law. Question number four. What is the most important aspect of the everlasting gospel? The most important aspect. This is a very interesting question. Let's look at John chapter 8. We'll look at uh, three verses. Beginning with verse 31. Then said Jesus to those Jews which believed on him... If ye continue in my word, 
Then are ye my disciples indeed, and ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. So Jesus says what? He says, you got to continue in his word. And when you continue in his word, then you're going to understand what the truth is. You're going to know the truth because his word teaches the truth. And by learning the truth, that truth is going to make you free. And in verse 36, he says, if the son therefore shall make you free, ye shall be free indeed. The only condition upon which the freedom of man is possible is that of becoming one with Christ. Jesus said there in verse 36, he said, the truth shall make you free. And Christ is the truth. He's the, the, the way, the life and the truth. Isn't that what the Bible tells us? So when we continue in his word by prayer and, and by studying it and sharing that truth with others, we grow closer to the likeness of Jesus and fulfill the most important aspect of the everlasting gospel, the very image of God being reproduced in humanity. Let's never forget that the honor of God and the honor of Christ is involved in the perfection of the character of his people. We can do nothing in perfecting our character without Jesus abiding within us. Didn't we read that before? Without me, ye can do nothing. John 15, 5. Right? So the question was, what is the most important aspect of the everlasting gospel? The answer, having the very character and image of God reproduced in humanity. That's what the gospel's all about. That's why it's called the good news. Question number five. What is our duty regarding the everlasting gospel? And once you learn the gospel, it comes with, it comes with something. You, remember, we, we experience the gospel, and so there's a duty uh, that's inherent within the gospel. Mark 16, verse 15 says, and this is Jesus again speaking. He said unto them, Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. And in Matthew 24 and verse 14 says, And this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world for a witness unto all nations, and then shall the end come. So here, God loves the world so much, He gave His only begotten Son. The love of God is one of unselfish charity. And that's what the gospel is all about. And the duty of, in, that's inherent in the gospel is it's not something that you selfishly hang on to. Because the love of Jesus, Paul says, constrains us. It doesn't restrain us. It constrains us. It pushes us to, to go out and do the works of Jesus and what Jesus do. He came to save a lost world. And if we do the works of Jesus, we're going to share that good news with the world, with everyone who will listen, just as Jesus did. And so what is our duty regarding the gospel? To share the good news with all the world. We need to share it. And like I said, the, the spirit of Christ living with us, that Holy Spirit living in us is going to constrain us to share. Um, I want to share this. This is out of a book called Gospel Workers, page 29. It says, The commission given to the disciples is given also to us. Today, as then, a crucified and risen Savior is to be uplifted before those who are without God and without hope in the world. To every nation, kindred, tongue, and people, the tidings of pardon through Christ are to be carried. Yeah, and uh, 
We can't but help talk about Jesus and what he's done for us in forgiving us and pulling us out of the gutter of sin so that we can have a good life here. We can have life right now here and not be eat up with guilt anymore. That, friends, is good news. Question six, will the everlasting gospel ever change? It's an interesting question. Will the everlasting gospel ever change? Remember, we're talking about this first angel's message, and part of that first angel's message was to give the everlasting gospel to the whole world, right? It has to do with the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. Is it ever going to change? Galatians chapter 1, verse 6. I marvel that ye are so soon removed from him that called you into the grace of Christ unto another gospel. And this is Paul speaking to the church at Galatia. He says, which is not another, but there be some that trouble you and would pervert the gospel of Christ. But though we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel unto you than that which we have preached unto you, let him be accursed. As we said before, so say I now again. If any man preach any other gospel unto you than that ye have received, let him be accursed. This is very interesting. Strong's tells us that everlasting, that word everlasting means perpetual. Right? Everlasting gospel. Perpetual. Webster's Dictionary says that perpetual means lasting forever or continuing without interruption. Constant. Strong's uh, concordance also tells us that gospel means a good message. Okay? Good news. The gospel. So the perpetual good message that Jesus the Messiah has come to save us from our sins. Friends, the message lasts forever. It's perpetual good news. The good news is, is that it never changes. God sustains us. He changes us. He brings us back into His image that we were created with to begin with before sin came to the world. And He's the one who sustains us through all eternity. That's the everlasting gospel. It all has to do with glorifying God and the power of God. And that first angel was saying we are to glorify God. It's a call back to glorify God. We'll get to more of that in just a minute. But the answer to question six, the everlasting gospel never changes. It doesn't need to change. Though we'll come to a time where no one has to repent anymore. Sin will be destroyed. The gospel has to do with the power of God to live a glorified life, a life that brings glory to God. A life that never chooses ever again to sin, even though we will always have that choice. We could always, through the rest of eternity, choose to sin. But we will not choose to sin, ever, for the rest of eternity. Because we know where sin takes you. That's the everlasting good news, friends. Question number seven. Revelation 14 and verse seven says to fear God. What does that mean? What does that mean to fear God? Genesis 22 verse 2 says, Take now thy son, thine only son Isaac, whom thou lovest, and get thee into the land of Moriah. This is God speaking to Abraham. And offer him there for a burnt offering upon one of the mountains, which I will tell thee of. Okay? So, Abraham, he obeyed God because 
Uh, he was scared to death of God. Is that what this is saying? Well, let's go on in this chapter, verse 12. And uh, here, the, of course, this is a story Abraham taking Isaac out and he's going to sacrifice our Isaac there on the mountain and because God had told him to. And, and the, the question has to deal with what does fearing God mean? When the Bible says to fear God, does, what does that mean? Is it an emotional thing where you're, you're scared to death of God or does it mean something else? And so, why is Abraham taking Isaac up onto the mountain? Why is he doing what God says? What is the motivation behind what he is uh, uh, saying? And, and why is he obeying God? What is the mo- motivation for Abraham? Uh, <clears throat> Genesis 22, verse 12. And he said, Lay not thine hand upon the lad, neither do thou anything unto him. For now I know that thou fearest God, seeing that thou hast not withheld thy withheld thy son, thine only son, from me. So, Abraham obeys God, and God keeps him from killing Isaac. And he says, God tells Abraham, you don't need to hurt the boy. This was a test. I know that you fear God. Interesting, isn't it? Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 1. Now these are the commandments, the statutes, and the judgments which the Lord your God commanded to teach you, that ye might do them in the land whither ye go to possess it, that thou mightest fear the Lord thy God, to keep all his statutes and his commandments which I command thee, thou and thy son and thy son's son, all the days of thy life, and that thy days may be prolonged. And then you look at Deuteronomy 8, verse 6. Therefore thou shalt keep the commandments of the Lord thy God to walk in His ways and to fear Him. So this is really interesting. The question here, the first angel of Revelation 14 says that we're to fear God. What does that mean? We see an instance here where Abraham obeyed God and was was told that he, he did it because he feared God. And then Deuteronomy says, well, you're keeping the commandments and the statutes and the judgments that God commanded you that you might fear the Lord. <laughs> right? So, gee, what does that mean? And then it says, thou, therefore thou shalt keep the commandments of the Lord thy God to walk in His ways and to fear Him. Well, Revelation was written in the, the Greek language and the Greek word for fear in, in, uh, uh, in this instance is akin to the Hebrew word yare, which means morally to revere, to be in awe of. So when we read about Abraham and it says, thou fearest God, it's basically saying that you uh, morally revere God. You're in awe of God. You're obeying Him because of, of you revere God. Not that you're scared of God per se, but that you you morally revere him, you're in awe of him. Well, what does moral mean? Webster's 1828 dictionary puts it this way. This is the definition they have for the word moral. The practice, manners, or conduct of men as social beings in relation to each other and with reference to right and wrong. The word moral is applicable to actions that are good or evil, virtuous or vicious. And notice this, he says, and has reference to the law of God as the standard by which their character is to be determined. So for Abraham, to fear God meant to obey God by developing a character like that of God. 
to morally revere God. So the first angel is calling us to do the same as Abraham and morally revere or develop a character like Jesus. And without his character revealed in our life, we will fail in our battle with the beast. And friends, we will lose eternal life. We will lose salvation. All heaven is given to help us in this development process. And uh, there's a big word uh, that's used for it. It's called sanctification. Being made righteous, being made holy. That's what it's, it's, uh, it's called. And so... Uh, question 7 says, you know, Revelation 14 7 says to fear God. What does that mean? It means to morally revere God or develop a character like Jesus, one that obeys God out of uh, having reverence for God, to morally revere God. And you show that you morally revere God because you, by your obedience through faith to Him, righteousness by faith, in essence. Question number eight. Revelation 14, 7 goes on to say, and give glory to Him. How do we tangibly give glory to God? We can say glory be to God and and speak those terms, but how do we tangibly give glory to God? This is very interesting. Uh, Let's start 1 Corinthians 6 and verse 20. For ye are bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. They belong to God. So, how do we glorify God? We're here Paul saying, look, you've been purchased. Jesus died for you, so, so he owns you. So now you glorify God in your body and in your spirit, because they belong to God. Really, in our body, that's interesting. John 15 verse 8 says, Herein is my Father glorified, that you bear much fruit so shall ye be my disciples. So we're to glorify God in our body, in, in essence, how we treat our bodies, right? And we also glorify God in bearing much fruit. And that's, you know, we read about the fruit of the Spirit and sharing what was part of the first angel's message was to share the everlasting gospel to the world. We bring people to a knowledge of the gospel and they join the family of God. That's also bearing fruit. And we become his disciples. Matthew 5 and verse 16 says, Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. And Psalms 15 verse 23 says, Whoso offereth praise glorifieth me, as God speaking. And so it's a Christian's duty, friends, to do all in their power to keep their bodies in the best condition. This is what Paul is talking about. Glorify God in your body and in your spirit, he says. So, we're called upon to do all in our power to keep our bodies in the best condition because they don't belong to us. Uh, and that's the maybe the best way to glorify God but and serve Him acceptably, where He accepts it. So an understanding, in essence, of physiology and and anatomy and the laws of health is necessary for everyone. And the practice of this knowledge is needed if the body is to be taken care of in an intelligent way. Christ's followers will not permit 
and you read through the Gospels and, and you see Jesus as your example, you see what he did and you see what's being taught in his word, you find that you know, you're not going to permit you know, ap- appetites, bodily appetites and desires to con- take control of us. That's part of that lower nature, that carnal nature. But instead, we're going to make our bodies servants. Uh, our mind's going to be regenerated by the Holy Spirit, and we're going to be constantly guided by the Holy Spirit into wisdom. And so we're going to learn, as we walk with the Lord, the right things to do to take care of our body. And in doing that, we bring glory to God, see? Glory comes to God when His image is reflected in the life of His follower. Okay? Satan claims that the requirements of God are too severe, that men cannot attain to the ideal of Christian perfection. And it's true, we're not going to have perfect bodies again until Jesus returns and and makes that change, but we can have a Christ-like character. And that's what the Bible is teaching us. Thus, the character of God is vindicated when men, through divine grace, become partakers of the divine nature, as, as Peter talks about, and reflect the image of God. Living by God's natural health laws, friends, hastens that process, and it brings glory to God. So, what is the answer to question number eight? The first angel says, give glory to Him. How do we tangibly give glory to God? Well, by reflecting God's image in our life, by staying healthy, helping others to know the gospel, and uh, loving God with our entire heart. Let me share this with you. This is from a Signs of the Times article that was entitled, Draw from the Source of Strength, October 17, 1892. It says, to give glory to God is to reveal His character in our own and thus make Him known. And in whatever way we make known the Father or the Son, we glorify God. That sums it up pretty well right there, doesn't it? Question number nine. What is the burden of the first angel's message? We look at Revelation 14, verse 7. Saying with a loud voice, Fear God and give glory to Him, for the hour of His judgment is come. And worship him that made heaven and earth and the sea and the fountains of waters. What is the real burden of the first angel's message? It's a calling back to give glory to God, right? It's a call back to that, to share the everlasting gospel, give glory to God. But the, whole, the big burden of it is to announce that the judgment is starting. You know, you, you might think, you know, you could just hang around for a while and wait until a certain time and then start getting your act together. You know, we as human beings, uh, we're, we're kind of like that, aren't, aren't we? We procrastinate. And, uh, and Paul tells us we, sh- we, we shouldn't do that. Today is the day of salvation. We need to make our decision now. But here, we're really down to it. Here, the first angel's coming. You need to get back to God. You need to fear God, bring glory to Him and share this good news with people because the hour of his judgment has come. Verse 7, again, is better rendered, saying with a mighty noise, reverence and awe the very God, and give him honor and praise and worship him, for the time of his judging is come. And worship him that brought forth the sky and earth and sea and the supplied waters. In essence, it's like, um, it's the last chance You're running out of time. The judgment has started. 
And so the message of the first angel sheds light as to the time when this judgment is to take place. And we studied this before in our lesson, uh, previous lessons in involving the judgment of God. Uh, Daniel chapter 8 and such. Um, and, and, and what's interesting is this is declared to be a part of the everlasting gospel that the, about the judgment. It's a part of the first angel's message and announces the opening of the judgment. So the message of salvation has been preached. You know, you look back, it's been preached in all ages, but this message, this message is part of the gospel which could be proclaimed only in the last days. You had the good news that was preached in the, in the Gospels and you read about it, but it wasn't, it wasn't uh, at that particular time, it wasn't known when the judgment had, was going to start. Okay? So that, that wasn't part of that Gospel message. But now it is a part of the Gospel message in this first angel. Okay? So it could only be proclaimed... This part of the gospel could only be proclaimed in the last days. The prophecies uh, present a succession of events, see, leading down to the opening of the judgment. And this is especially true of the book of Daniel. But remember that part of his prophecy, which related to the last days, Daniel was bidden to close up and to seal, as it said, to the time of the end, which we previously learned in, in, in our previous studies began in 1798 AD. So not till we reach this time frame could a message concerning the judgment be proclaimed based on the fulfillment of these time prophecies. So the three angels' messages could have been given, uh, I, I should say, would have, have to be given sometime after 1798, you know, the time of the end, and just before the judgment would begin, as the first angel's message is the one that heralds that event. So it's not going to say, you know, bring in the, uh, proclaim the message necessarily after it started. No, it comes in as an announcement that it is started, see. And when were the three angels' messages first given? Well, the summer of 1844, we studied about when the judgment began, it was, they first began to be given by God's people in the summer of 1844, and the judgment started on October 22nd in 1844. But at the time of the end, says the prophet, many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall be increased. We read that in Daniel 12, verse 4. And such knowledge as the opening or the beginning of the, the judgment began, see, as these these. Knowledge, this knowledge of the prophecies was increased, see, as the books of Daniel were unsealed and opened up at the time of the end. So after 1798 AD, much knowledge was increased about prophecies and such, and it was leading up to when the judgment would begin. And this is when the first angel's message was given, the summer of 1844. Question number 10. Revelation 10 and verse 6 says, that there shall be time no longer. Is this real? Real time? Or is it prophetic time? What's being spoken of here? Well, this is talking about um, an angel here. John's seeing this, and this angel brings a book. Well, let's look at it. Revelation 10, verse 10 
says, and I took the little book out of the angel's hand and ate it up. And it was in my mouth sweet as honey. And as soon as I had eaten it, my belly was bitter. And he said unto me, thou must prophesy again before many peoples and nations and tongues and kings. Well, in Revelation 10 there, he says, time shall be no longer. Um, Is this real or prophetic time? Well, the short answer is, friends, we're still here, aren't we? (laughs) Right? So it's not talking about real time. It's talking about prophetic time that ended. God's messages to his servants have often been a mixture of, of, of sweetness and bitterness. Right? If you go through the Bible, you read about it. And here, John takes this little book and when he eats it, it's sweet in his mouth as honey, but then it, it, makes him, it gives him an upset stomach. Right? It's a mixture of sweetness and bitterness. For they may reveal both these, the, the, these messages from God. Uh, they may reveal both His love, but then also His judgments. Right? Prophets of God have experienced both the ecstasy of divine vision and the bitterness of delivering messages of rebuke to men. Okay? In a specific sense, the experience that came to John here in vision may be seen as typical of that of the Advent believers there in the years, you know, 1840 to 1844. When these believers first heard the message of the imminent second coming, it was to them sweet as honey. When you go back and you do any research on the Great Advent Awakening, you'll find they believed that Jesus was coming in the year 1844. They sold farms, they sold equipment, they were preparing for that time. They were spreading the message all around the world. It, It tasted really sweet, see. But when Christ didn't come as they expected, their experience was indeed very bitter. Okay? And so, you know, though John's eating of the book had ended in bitterness, Christ's reassuring words to the prophet are that he is now to prophesy again. And so, as a representative of the Advent believers after the disappointment there in 1844, John is placed under strong obligation to deliver a further message. A great work remains to be done. This is what he's saying. They must go forth and proclaim the three messages that we're studying now, the three angels' messages. The time which the angel declares with a solemn oath is not the end of this world's history, nor a probationary time, but a prophetic time which should precede the second coming of Christ. That is, the people will not have another message upon definite time after the judgment in heaven begins. And this is something we really must understand, friends, as there are many, many seemingly convincing arguments by sincere people that there are indeed repeats of time prophecies. I'll tell you that knowing that knowing that since 1844 that there will not be a message based on definite time has saved me, myself, from being led astray into strong delusions that I see others falling for. The sad part is that you can't convince them otherwise. There are people going around saying that these time prophecies repeat and such. I mean, they sound can sound logical. That's the deceptive part about them. You've got to apply right... Uh, um, Biblical principles of study. 
The angel told John that time would be no longer, and he's talking about prophetic time. So when that last time prophecy, the 2300-day prophecy, which we studied about, that tells us when the judgment begins, when that prophecy comes to an end, there will be no more messages based on time. There no, these time prophecies, and one of the, friends, one of the Bible principles of, of studying prophecy prophecy and time prophecies is that uh, remember when early on we started this series we talked about the three methods of interpretation and one of them was the historical you know the historicist method of interpretation when a prophecy is fulfilled it has been fulfilled it's not going to be repeated again now there are particular actions and things that sometimes you know people say history repeats itself, and that's just the uh, uh, certain actions and stuff. But when it comes to time prophecies, they do not repeat themselves once they've been fulfilled. And so you run into people who are just convinced, see, that history is going to be repeated again. This time prophecy, you know, can be applied in a different way, you know, two ways. And you can't convince them otherwise. All you can do is pray for them. And so, if a preacher tells you that Jesus is coming on such and such a date, or that the stock market's going to crash according to Old Testament time cycles, or that the mark of the beast is going to last for 1260 days, well, friends, then you know he's headed down the wrong path. Now, don't misunderstand me. It doesn't mean... Jesus isn't coming back or that the stock market will not crash or that the mark of the beast won't last that long. It just means that there are no time prophecies declaring such things. You can depend upon it for God has said it and we're always safe sticking with exactly what God has said. He told John there that time shall be no more. He's talking about time prophecies, prophecy, prophetical time. And then he reassured John, you're going to have to prophesy again. What that means is you're going to have to preach before many people, nation, tongues, and kings. In other words, Scott's people are still going to have to proclaim the message. Question 11. What is the little book that gives the longest time prophecy? And I alluded to this just a, just a moment ago. So we see this angel has this little book and John takes it and he eats it, right? Well, what is that little book that gives the longest time prophecy? Daniel 12 and verse 4 again. But thou, O Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book. He's talking about this book. Even to the time of the end, many shall run to and fro and knowledge shall be increased. So the prophecies of Daniel were described as being in a book. Daniel was to seal the book, right? And then in Revelation 10, we read where the angel has the little book and he gives it to John. John eats the book. Now when you, you say, oh, I ate that up, right? The book wasn't really food, was it? John opened it up. He, it opens up the prophecies of Daniel, see? We've studied this out of how the, the book shall be opened at the time of the end. Those prophecies shall be opened. Those sealed prophecies of Daniel were opened up to understanding. See? And so the people who began to read these things, they misunderstood something that was taught, and it was found in Daniel 8 and verse 14. 
And he said unto me, Unto two thousand and three hundred days, then shall the sanctuary be cleansed. They understood the day for a year principle. They understood that it was 2,300 years. They found the beginning. They found that the judgment was to begin in 1844, but they misunderstood what cleansing the sanctuary meant. And so when they heard this news, it was very good news. They ate it up. It was sweet as honey, but like I mentioned before, when they didn't, um, <coughs> when Jesus didn't come, it was very bitter. So Daniel had been instructed to shut up the words, seal the book to the time of the end. And this admonition applies particularly to the part of Daniel's prophecies that deal with the last days, and doubtless especially to the time element of the 2300 days as it relates to the preaching of of the first, second, and third angel's messages here in Revelation 14. Inasmuch as the message of the, the present angel deals with time and presumably with events at the time of the end, when the book of Daniel was to be unsealed, it's reasonable for us to conclude then that the little book open in the hand of the angel was the book of Daniel. And with the presentation to John of the little book open, then the sealed portions of Daniel's prophecy are revealed, see? They're opened up for our understanding. And so the time element pointing out the end of the 2300-day prophecy is made clear. And consequently, Daniel 8 in verse 14 focuses upon the time when the proclamation of of the first angel was made. That is, when did the judgment begin? Well, they were talking about it from 1840 up until it did start in 1844. And so in our studies, we've learned that a day in prophecy, again, is equal to a literal year. The 2300 days in this little book of Daniel 8.14 would be 2300 literal years. And this is the longest time prophecy in the Bible. Don't let anybody tell you there's you know, uh, something going around now that people are saying, no, there's 2,520 year prophecy. No, friends, they misunderstand what Leviticus is talking about there, and it's not a prophecy. I don't care how many pages of Scripture they supposedly have to support it, they're twisting it. They're not using right uh, biblical principles of interpretation. The longest time prophecy in the Bible is found in Daniel 8 and verse 14. And uh, it's the longest time prophecy. It includes the 70 week prophecy that we studied in lesson two, if you remember. 70 weeks being determined or cut off of the 2300. And so both of them, remember, had the same starting date, 457 BC. And so we found that the 70 week or the 490 literal years that 70-week prophecy ended in 34 AD when Stephen was stoned and, and the gospel then went to the Gentiles. And that left 1,810 years of the 2,300-year prophecy remaining to be fulfilled. So all we had to do was add 1,810 years to, to the year 34 AD and that brought us to 1844 AD as the fulfillment of Daniel 8.14 when the judgment would begin. And so the time of the judgment would open in heaven we found, remember, October 22nd of 1844, the actual Day of Atonement for that year. There was prophetic time no longer after that point, friends. Which basically means, this is all it really means, Jesus could now come as soon as His people finished their work for Him. And their work is that of character perfection, bringing glory to God. This is what the first angel's call is, to fear God, give glory to Him. 
For what? The hour of his judgment is come. So the answer to question 11, what is the little book that gives the longest time prophecies? The little book is Daniel chapter 8, verse 14. Question number 12, the last part of the first angel's message speaks of worshiping the Creator. How should we worship Him? That's an interesting question, isn't it? How should we worship our Creator? John chapter 4 and verse 23. And Jesus said, But the hour cometh and now is when the true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father seeketh such to worship Him. So, how should we worship our Creator? The answer? By Loving God who is the truth and applying the truth to our life. We are to worship the Creator um, in all sincerity with the highest faculties of our mind and our emotions and, and, and applying the principles of truth to our heart. That really is what genuine worship is. And Jesus says all else is false. You can read through Matthew 5 and 7 and Mark 7 about that. I found this knife, something very nice. It's in the book, My Life Today, page 46. It says, in order to serve him aright, we must be born of the divine spirit. This will purify the heart and renew the mind, giving us a new capacity for knowing and loving God. It will give us a willing obedience to all his requirements. This is true worship. Do you get that? It is the fruit of the working of the Holy Spirit. What? What is true worship? It will give us a willing obedience to all His requirements. That's what true worship is. And so, how should we worship Him? In spirit and in truth. Applying the truth to our life. Question 13. If we are worshipers of the true God of heaven, what will we do? Hmm. If we are worshipers of the true God of heaven, what are we going to do? What will we do? Matthew 7, verse 21. Jesus said, Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. What will we do? We will do the will of the Father, right? John 9, verse 31. Now we know that God heareth not sinners, but if a man be a worshiper of God and doeth his will, him he heareth. And so, if we are worshipers of the true God of heaven, what will we do? The answer? We'll do the will of God in all aspects of our life. The one who performs the will of God when he learns of it is, is essentially a true worshiper. Isn't that right? Faith in God must accompany the doing, or the doing is only a form. It is true that faith, if it hath not works, is dead being alone, as James says in James 2.17. But it's equally true that works unaccompanied by a sincere and living faith are also dead. You read about that in Hebrews 11, the faith chapter. Those who don't know the will of God, um, well, they're not held accountable for it. But those who've heard God's voice speak into their hearts and yet persist in ways of their own choosing... um, Jesus said they have no cloak for their sin and they're in danger of presumption. So John, he declares that the believer fulfills two conditions. First, 
they keep God's commandments. And second, they do those things that please God. And both of those things is what Jesus did. Right? So they live the life of Jesus. That's what true worshipers of the true God of heaven will do. They will do the works of Jesus by faith. Amen? Question 14. What is God's will? So you're going to do the will of the Father. Well, some people, well, what is the will of God? What is God's will? Psalms 40 and verse 8 says, I delight to do thy will, O my God. Yea, thy law is within my heart. So the psalmist is saying, well, God's law is God's will, right? Psalms 112 verse 1, Praise ye the Lord. Blessed is the man that feareth the Lord, that delighteth greatly in his commandments. Psalms 128 verse 1, Blessed is everyone that feareth the Lord, that walketh in his ways. And then, of course, we know what Jesus said in John 14, 15, If you love me, keep my commandments. So what is God's will? It's his will for us to keep his commandments. To do his will is to keep his commandments. Love for God is the motive, you see, of obedience to him. We talked about Abraham earlier. What motivated Abraham to take his son out to a mountain to put him to death as God had asked him to do? It was love for God. And it said that, now I know that you fear us God. You have a reverent awe for God. You love God. You trust God. Obedience that springs from compulsion or from fear is not, uh, is not the ideal form of obedience. One of the, the best human illustrations of obedience that springs from love is that of uh, you look at children to their parents. With Jesus, the keeping of God's law was a matter both of intellect and of feeling, of the mind and of the heart. To the Jews, the externals, they were the sum, you see, of, of to, the sum total of all religion. Jesus taught that there were only that what they did was only a means to an end, and that the end itself was harmony with the will of God. The basic function of the plan of salvation, friends, is to restore in man the image of God. That's the, the basic function of it. The basic function of the gospel, you could say, the plan of salvation, is to restore man, and I mentioned this before, to re- bring man back to the image that he was first created with, that image of God. And so what is God's will? It's for us to keep his commandments, motivated by love for him. Question 15, as we close up our study. What promise in the Bible is given to those who obey God's revealed will? What promise in the Bible is given to those who obey God's revealed will. John 7, verse 17. If any man will do his will, he shall know of the doctrine, whether it be of God or whether I speak of myself. That's interesting what Jesus was saying there. And then in John 13, 17, he says, if ye know these things, happy are ye if you do them. (laughs) Right? So what promise in the Bible is given to those who obey God's revealed will? Well, they will be able to discern truth and live it through Jesus Christ. They're going to be happy. They're happy to do it. He who sincerely desires to do the will of God will be enlightened by God and enabled to evaluate correctly the the religious claims or, well, claims of others. 
And friends, as you study out the Bible, I mean, a, a prerequisite to receiving light is that uh, the seeker for truth must be willing to follow in the light that may be revealed to them. A knowledge of duty places upon man the responsibility of performance, right? Uh, a man's not held responsible for the things of which he's ignorant, provided, of course, that his ignorance is not willful ignorance. In other words, if you have an opportunity to, to know what God says and you don't take advantage of that opportunity, well, you are accounted as having uh, known, see? But if you didn't have an opportunity to know, God doesn't hold that against you. He's a just God. So what, what, uh, what have we learned from this first angel's message? Well, seven things, basically. And there's much more, but seven things. First, this is not a literal angel, but a worldwide message. Two, this message consists of the perpetual good news of salvation, that through Christ's merits we can reflect the image of God perfectly in our life here. We can be changed, you see, to be like Christ. Three, this message tells us the time of the Messiah's first advent. It does. We get to study in Daniel's prophecies about the judgment. Fourth thing, that his true church, the body of Christ, will be giving this message to every nation, tongue, and people. If you want to know who God's people are, just before Jesus' return, you want to know who the saints are, you look for those group of people around that are giving these three angels' messages, the true three angels' messages, friends, among other things. Uh, the fifth thing is that this message calls people to glorify God in body and in spirit. So to follow God's health laws is an integral part of this message, health reform, learning what God has to say about how to treat your body, and then putting that into practice. Sixth thing, this message proclaims that there is a judgment that all must face on an individual basis before God. And the seventh thing is that this message tells us that the time of the judgment has opened, bringing to an end the longest time prophecy in the Bible, Daniel 8.14. And any further prophecies based upon definite time, there won't be any, see. On October 22nd, 1844, the great court from which there is no appeal convened in the most holy place of the heavenly sanctuary. And we studied that out previous weeks here. And so, friends, we find really in just this short study, and it really is a brief study of the first angel's message. Um, this first angel's message packs with it a lot of information and it, it paves the way for the next two messages, all of which prepares us for the final battle with the beast, his image, his mark, and the number of his name. And so, I mean, can you see how important the study of Bible prophecy really is to each of us? Yeah. Is it your wish to be a member of God's people and reflect the image of Jesus? I hope so. Because now is the time to make your choice. Don't delay to have your name written in the Lamb's Book of Life, my friend. Choose Jesus as your Lord and Savior right now, won't you? Let's bow our heads together. Father in heaven, we thank you so very, very much for your love towards us. We thank you very much for the Holy Spirit and for, for protecting your Bible and for giving us prophecy, a heads up, a history in advance to, to prepare us for what is soon to happen. This is, uh, this is the act of, of love. 
that you would uh, care so much for us that you would want us to be prepared for what is soon to happen. And we thank you so much for that. We pray for the Holy Spirit to continue to to, uh, strive with us, be in our hearts and our minds and, and teach us. We pray for forgiveness, Father, and for our stubbornness. We pray that you will soften our hearts, that we may no longer have hearts of stone, but hearts of flesh. We thank you so much for this first angel. We pray that you will continue to teach us uh, the message of the gospel, what it entails, health reform, how to bring glory to thy name. Please be with these dear souls uh, throughout this coming week until we can meet again and worship thee in spirit and in truth. We pray in the blessed name of Jesus who is so worthy to be praised. Amen.